All right. We got rid of those folks on the radio. Uh, so, howdy. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for staying with us. We've got a great overtime lined up for you. You can still call in. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR, uh, 844-899-8857. We are now in overtime, and we've got some good stuff. Mel Bure is joining from Morning Riot Podcast. Amazon is banning freedom. The NLRB moves to ban captive audience meetings. We talk about the slap and more. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, so Mel Bure is an adjunct English professor. She is writing a book on radical media for OR Books. She is the host of Morning Riot. Mel, welcome to the Valley Labor Report. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. So um, I met you when you helped Max with that Kellogg's fundraising stream a couple mm-hmm. months ago. How much did y'all end up raising again? Wasn't it like 15? Uh, I think it was... Yeah, close to eighteen thousand dollars, I think, something like that. That's awesome. That's yeah. yeah. That that's really great. How did you get mixed up, uh, mi- mixed up with a character like Max? I mean, that's <laughs> like, yeesh. Uh, Twitter actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I was uh, podcasting. I started podcasting in like twenty nineteen um, with uh, uh, um, Pearson Bolt of uh, Coffee with Comrades. And I ended up getting a Twitter because I wanted to be uh, sort of available to listeners if they had questions or concerns or they were angry with what I said on my podcast. Um, And uh, over the course of that year, I just met a lot of interesting, uh, ostensibly leftist podcasters. And so uh, Max and I ended up in a a group DM for um, some election podcasts that we did in early 2020. And that's kind of how we got uh, mixed up together. Great guy. Love working with Absolutely. him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Really, really great guy. Couldn't, uh, couldn't ask for a, for a better fella to, you know, mm-hmm. cover worker struggles. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Truly. his working people podcast, really great. Um, he's doing really great work as the editor in chief over at the real news. And you've been writing some articles for them, right? I have. Yeah. Uh, most recent one was, a uh, unfortunately unsuccessful, Union drive that happened at Saber Industries in Sioux City. Uh, mm. It's a manufacturing company. It's a plant out in Sioux City that makes uh, steel structures for the telecommunications industry. And one of their workers uh, sent me a DM like last October after the Kellogg strike kicked off, saying that they had walked off the job. And um, they reached out to the IBEW and we're trying to bring a union into the plant. This is like the third time that they've tried to do it. And this is the closest they got. They actually got a union election through the NLRB. And unfortunately, the uh, union avoidance, air quotes there, um, the union busting company that the, the in, uh, Saber Industries brought in was uh, successful in trying to turn people away from a, a union vote. But um, yeah, they got close. Hopefully next time they actually win it, you know. So. Yeah. Yeah, hope so. Hope so. Uh, so. What about what about your podcast? What kind of stuff? I, I uh, you know, there are so many podcasts that I I have. Yours has like been on my list, but I haven't actually been able to like check it out. What kind of stuff do you talk about on Morning Riot? Um, all sorts of things. Really, Morning Riot is meant to be kind of a free flowing conversation with uh, activists, labor historians. You know, our next season, we're planning on doing more of a sort of history type of season about the Haymarket affair. Um, mm. But usually it's 
it's just conversations with folks. Um, and uh, recent episodes, we've talked about the labor movement. We've talked about uh, leftist or radical media. We've talked about um, uh, all sorts of interesting things. Uh, the podcast has only got a couple of episodes in its first season. I am in the midst of writing a book, so it's kind of a little bit lower on my priority list. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm deep in this book writing, so we probably won't see a second season for another couple of months. Gotcha. Gotcha. What about the what about the book? Can you uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, the book is uh, tentatively titled F Your Newsroom. I don't know if I can swear on this <laughs> podcast, so uh, I will. You can now. now. Yeah, we're, we're off the radio only now. Yeah, yeah. We're, oh, now, we're okay. in overtime, so we're off the radio, and the FCC censors can't do anything to us. So. Just the YouTube censors. The, the, the book is called Fuck Your Newsroom, um, and it's go. a book about radical media and uh, particularly radical independent anti-capitalist media. I don't know if you have these conversations with a uh, you know leftist or radical folks who are in media, everyone's constantly talking about how we need robust independent media to you know, counter the sort of mainstream media narrative that happens in this country. Um, my argument is that we kind of have it. You know, um, there are a lot of folks who are putting in a lot of work to kind of build that sort of alternative. Um, and many of them are anarchists, they're anti-capitalists, they're socialists, you know, and we all have sort of tapped into this uh, longstanding legacy of uh, um, I don't even want to call it countercultural because I, I don't think it is um, just radical media in this country. It's been it's been a part of. Uh, uh, organizing and politics in this country for as long as this country has had uh, any sort of media wing, you know, the political origins of this media uh, infrastructure date back well before we even were a country. So, mm. um, and, you know, I, the, the book is meant to be sort of a study or, you know, it's not, uh, it's not going to be all encompassing because that would take too long, um, you know, take years and years of, of really kind of reaching out to everyone. But um what I really want to do is draw attention to the fact that there are folks who are uh, working together and uh, separate from each other to kind of build up that alternative media ecosystem, you know. Um, and I really want to draw attention to the fact that, like, we can the potential to continue to build uh, more independent anti-capitalist media is there. All we have to do is talk to each other. So I think that is yeah. fantastic. And I. You know, I hope just having you on the show today is is one uh, little step in that direction, because mm. as Jacob mentioned, there are so many uh, podcasts out now that are like right up our alley mm -hmm. or that have mm -hmm. something important to say, uh, you know, in, in addition to, of course, Real News Network, More Perfect Union, Labor Notes and In These Times, magazines and websites and, and mm -hmm. video series, there's there is a, a pretty robust media system out there for for folks of our persuasion and um yeah i think mm -hmm. that's fantastic uh, the more we can all collaborate and if we're all pulling in the same direction there we can just do so much more and so yeah thankful yeah. thankful that you um, are, are doing that work and and you're here to share it with us yeah i'm looking forward it. to uh to your book and and hopefully we'll be able to get you on to talk more about yeah, it once it's out be awesome yeah, uh, but that's absolutely. not why i brought you on today um <laughs> The reason that I brought you on was to have a good laugh. Um, <laughs> you uncovered the Labor Relations Institute, their white paper, mm. um, 
Left of Boom, Best Practices for Proactive Companies in a Changing Labor Environment. The Labor Relations Institute is actually the union-busting firm that Hershey's contracted in their Stewart's Draft Virginia anti-union campaign. Um, So, Mel, can you tell folks what is so interesting about this paper? Um, yeah, so the Labor Relations Institute is also the union busting firm that was brought in to Saver Industries. They have also, I think, more famously, if you know what's been going on with the Collectivo Coffee Roasters Union Drive, um, the NLRB got involved because Labor Relations Institute, I think, was found to be uh, doing some nefarious shit. Really. Um, And uh, I think there was a formal complaint actually filed against them for some of the shit they were doing with the Collectivo coffee roasters, um, who I believe uh, were successful in their union drive despite this. Um, But if you look at the Labor Relations Institute website, all it is, the whole the whole company essentially is meant to. Uh, avoid unions in the workplace, you know, that that is what they make their their money on. And they they have been in business for, you know, they claim, you know, for 40 years, they claim to have won uh, 10,000 plus elections, which means there are no unions at those workplaces, 250,000 plus direct relationships preserved, right? And they have a series of white papers on their website that are publicly available. And one of them is filed under uh, this folder that says, what can your business learn from the Iraq war, which God, um, it's absurd. <laughs> it's absurd. Right. And left of boom is this white paper that was written in 2010 by Philip Wilson, the president and general counsel of LRI. Um, and the whole idea is that it uses this very heavy handed sort of comparison of union organizers being, Iraqi insurgents dropping an IED in the workplace. Um, Wow. Yeah, it's uh, there's a lot here. Um, I don't recommend reading it if you like to keep your blood pressure (laughs) below a certain level, because, you know, to be quite frank, like it's absurd, but also um, it's a little uh, uh, unsettling. The, the, the ways in which yes. they, they view workplace organizers, um, especially, you know, far beyond just the idea of, OK, so we're not terrorist insurgents in the workplace. You know what I mean? That's yikes, you know, um, because we all know are, how those are treated by uh, the American <laughs> empire. Um, so, but, yeah, it is as funny as yeah. it is. It is a little scary that, you know, mm-hmm. we, we would even be tagged with that label. Well, it's also it's really illuminating to kind of see how uh, managers, bosses, company owners and the folks at these union avoidance firms view uh, workplace organizers, whether you're a worker or organizer or, you know, you are a paid staff at a business union coming into a workplace. You know, all of these things, they're like, yeah, you are part of this sort of uh, insurgency and individuals who want to, quote unquote, preserve the direct management relationship i.e. not have a a union in your workplace you know you are members of the military that are tasked with rooting out these bomb makers and making sure that the these bombs don't go off in the workplace you know it's very freaky language right and if you read this this white paper it's so annoying it's it just makes me want to 
punch someone, you know. I, I have um, to say, like, the class consciousness among <laughs> the ruling class again and really again something. is demonstrated, like, you know, I think we can all look at issues in terms of working class consciousness and our, our ability to conceive of ourselves as a class collectively. But the bosses, they don't have that problem. Uh, they are very conscious and uh, seem to be pretty explicit in, yeah. in how they view us. This is class warfare. Literally, we, they're using a war metaphor to talk mm-hmm. about workplace organizing and combating workplace organizing. They understand as much as, you know, as much as we should understand that this is class warfare from the top down, you know. Um, and uh, the, the white paper itself has, you know, it's very illuminating to see how they would uh, uh, step into potential uh, workplace organizing campaigns and try and figure out ways to disrupt it, you know, um, Perhaps this is good uh, information for anyone who would like to see how a boss fight would go down in the workplace, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, However, there are some parts of this that just make me laugh, like on the first first page. What is this page? Yeah, the first page. There's this there's this footnote. The obligatory, I would like to thank so-and-so, but thank our troops who are in the Middle East, which is, I think, hilarious. You know, uh, this paper is dedicated to the thousands of men and women around the world who put their lives at risk for their country every single day. Like there's like an obligatory thank the troops footnote in this white paper, which is hilarious to me. Um, It's also hilarious that the vast majority of the research done for this white paper came from a series of Washington Post articles. And conversations with uh, family members who are in the military, apparently. Um, yeah, just great. So how much of the paper is like, if most of it is done from talking to the the like uh, um, families of military members, like how... And skimming Washington Post yeah, articles. Yeah, I mean, how do, how do they connect that to like, what is actually the connection between anti-U.S. Iraqi insurgents and union organizers. Um, There's a military strategy that he talks about. Um, The military created the Joint Improvised Explosive Device Defeat Organization, which is apparently an organization that spends all of its time uh, rooting out potential instances where a military convoy could hit an IED. So essentially what they're doing is not only are they trying to avoid these situations from happening in the first place, uh, you know, like making sure that these folks aren't, um, you know, getting blown up on their way to a different city in Iraq. They're trying to find the bomb maker. They're trying to find the parts that make the bomb. They're trying to be proactive in the way that they do uh, this type of research and, and working. And so what he's doing is he's kind of drawing this into uh, this is Philip Wilson, the, the Labor Relations Institute CEO. What he's doing is he's trying to draw a comparison to how you can uh, find the quote unquote bomb maker before you get to the point where a bomb goes off in the workplace. Um, and he calls it left of boom or right of boom. And the, the techniques that we are most familiar with in the workplace in terms of union avoidance coming in would be called right of boom in this white paper. So we're talking about captive audience meetings. We're talking about showing a video about union cards, uh, pointing people to websites that quote unquote educate employees about unions, right? All of the anti-union propaganda that ends up in the workplace as a union drive is happening. He calls the firewall defense, the right of boom strategy, right? The left of boom strategy means that we 
want to make sure that the workplace is structured in such a way that there is no moment where workers feel like they have a space to organize. And it's very weird uh, strategies that he talks about. Um, the, the biggest one is essentially creating a culture in the workplace where managers have the ability to essentially surveil their employees and stop anyone from potentially organizing their workplace in the first place. And he, he does this whole thing where it's like, make sure the workplace is a great place to work so that there is no like grading event that would cause a union drive to kick off, you know, because oftentimes that's what happens. You have a grievance. The grievance isn't addressed properly, whether it's because the management is uh, assholes or, you know, a pay raise is disproportionate for what's going on or whatever. They talk about how like you want to make sure that your workplace is full of employees that are satisfied. But if you like read through, like read between the lines, what they're doing actually is creating a culture where individuals who are perhaps charismatic talk to their worker, you know, their fellow workers uh, very often create these spaces where they could potentially be a worker organizer in a campaign in the future. They don't have the chance to get a foothold amongst the rest of the employees, essentially. So you're training management to seek, uh, see uh, chinks in the armor, essentially. Right. Um, to make sure that these union uh, drives or org- organizing drives don't happen, you you look for them constantly. And what that looks like is surveilling your employees, creating a company culture where employees can surveil each other and report back to management about potential union uh, activity that's happening. Um, you know, uh, you're, you're essentially just trying to create this this culture where. Um, no one trusts each other. There is no solidarity built, you know, and that has a, uh, you know, direct benefit to management and bosses who don't want union activity happening in their workplace. So it's not about improving working conditions, you know, right. It's not about good pay for the sake of it because workers deserve it. You know, they're entitled to it. It's not about good workplace conditions where these things are, Uh, a part of the culture because it benefits the worker. It's so that there's no, um, you know, none of those things happen in the workplace, according to this white paper, right? It's very insidious, right? We could talk shit on this because it's fucking absurd. You know what I mean? But at the same Mm -hmm. time, like what's happening, you know, in these conversations is that you are essentially surveilling your employees to make sure that there is no union activity that happens. And at that is like insidious shit that's going on here you know yeah Um, so what are the like you know create creating a a culture where solidarity is difficult to build like what what does that you know what what are the what is the advice basically that that you know the this union busting firm gives the bosses who in this case are you know u.s military members to find you know the jihadi insurgents which is presumably union organizers like what is the advice to actually implement that um a culture where solidarity is difficult to build like what are the things and 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 where you might snitch on your coworker for like talking about um you know freedom or something yeah there's a there's a bunch of different things that they they have like five different strategies that they outline as being left of boom strategies so um the biggest ones that i took away from you know um they, you create this culture where uh, employee engagement um, is based on sort of um, 
building what they call a uh, what do they call it? Uh, a promoter sort of culture. So you create a culture where your employees are active promoters of your organization and where you are stressing projects and engagements that increase the number of employees who are promoters. So instead of people talking shit about their job, you create a culture where they don't talk shit about their job, essentially, so that they can bring in more individuals who are interested about that. Uh, There's also employee survey research, which I consider to be surveilling your employees. And what you're doing is you are identifying what they call key nodes in the informal communication network. So this is where the surveillance happens, right? So it's a structured interview process where you're identifying key influencers among employees, not only people who would potentially begin to agitate for workplace organizing, but also people who would be able to do the sort of counterinsurgency that you want to do in a workplace. And you, mm-hmm. you, uh, you know, you influence those individuals to make sure that they are promoting the positive company culture, right? Um, these are also the same to- sort of people who would uh, then become uh, 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 folks who could snitch on your, your coworkers, essentially, if that, if that shit were happening, you know, Um The other strategy is like positive employee relations training for supervisors. They have this trademarked training called (laughs) tripwire training. It's trademarked. They've trademarked the phrase tripwire training, which uh, apparently is uh, designed to teach supervisors and managers how to recognize behavior change in the workplace before it spirals out of control into a boom event. So essentially this guy has like, ran with this metaphor to its like logical end. Mm. You know what I mean? Like this has mm-hmm. been the thing that they've been, they've been trafficking in for at least the last 10 years. They have a whole ass training program for management. That's all based in this sort of like, make sure the bomb doesn't go off in the workplace. I think he's probably so proud of this shit. He probably is so right. chopped about it. Fucking ridiculous. But it's hilarious because it's like active interval training is designed to teach supervisors how not to be a jerk, not because they should be good people, but because we don't need mm-hmm. worker organizers using that as a way to organize a, a, a fucking union campaign. In a, in a One way. of the things I see in here that's repeated over and over is about direct relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's where we've talked frequently on this show about the union busting campaigns and the way they love to third party unions. And in some cases, unions do things that make that more effective because they function more like third parties. Uh, but that is such a, a huge part of, I know, Amazon and Starbucks right now, but it's it's really per- pervasive. And you see, uh, I just see this quote, it's critically important that the direct relationship message be repeated regularly and in multiple channels. And it goes on and on about how basically the employees should be bombarded nonstop from the moment they are hired with this idea of direct relationship and they even mentioned, you know, basically don't, don't, you don't, you shouldn't necessarily throw in unions as part of that conversation. We don't want to get a unfair labor practice charge. Just keep it as direct relationship. And the thing that immediately, you know, brings to mind is if I have a direct relationship with somebody, they don't have to remind me every day. (laughs) Um, You know, at some point, like, you know, I'm married. Uh, my wife and I have a direct relationship. We can talk about anything. And, yeah, we'll, st- we'll still remind each other, like, hey, you know, you can come talk to me about whatever. Um, but it's something we know because it's true. Uh, and that's the, the, the funny thing about it is 
is you're trying to convince people of things that are not so.、Uh, any worker who has an issue on the job knows they don't have a direct relationship with anybody、uh, in power because、uh, you go to your boss and they're probably going to redirect you to HR. You go to HR, they're going to redirect you back to your boss, and you just get stuck in this, you know, cycle.、Mm-hmm. And that's assuming. They just don't offhand dismiss you or、uh, retaliate against you、mm-hmm. from the jump, which is often、right. what's going to happen. And so, you know, it's just、uh, it's it is pretty insidious. And and what you mentioned earlier about the identifying people, like key people, you know, in a lot of ways they follow the union organizer playbook of of mapping the workplace and identifying. You know your your strong supporters, your leaders, your、uh, you know your in betweens. They do a lot of the same thing from the opposite、uh, vantage point. Well, and you have to also remember that a lot of these independent consultants that LRI contracts in these workplaces are former union members. Like、mm. uh, the the independent、Gross. consultant that was brought in for Saber Industries. Uh, who did? Who conducted、uh, an incredible amount of captive audience meetings across three shifts <laughs> uh, every week for like I don't know two months, three months while this union drive was happening.、Um, he uses that as a as you know. I listen to these captive audience meeting recordings. I have like a couple of hours of them, which I again don't recommend listening to if you like your blood pressure to stay at a certain level. You know what I mean?、Um, these workers had the patience of saints. Because I would have just stood up and slapped the shit out of this man.、Um, he's like, I'm a former teamster, you know. I, you know, I was in a union, and that's like a huge part of it. Where they're like, I、right. worked with this union, and I found that the union wasn't worth it for me, you know. And then they got into private consulting because it caught you. Know, companies will pay you really good money to do that shit to be essentially a class trader. You know what I mean? Yeah.、Um, Oh, yeah, I mean, we brought that、so、up earlier、much. on the show. I, actually,、uh, it's funny <laughs> that you mentioned that. We talked about folks who flip from union office、mm-hmm. or union staff and end up in management, you know,、mm-hmm. or end up at the HR, you know, department across the table from you. I mean, there's just so much cachet there. Like, for I mean, this isn't just union management, union union buster, but I mean, no, like you have a certain level of like cachet as somebody who has. Changed, right? So I mean, that's how that's how like Dave Rubin got to be, you know, a、uh, uh, a big celebrity on the right is because he was like, I'm a gay lefty, but man, the lefties are super crazy. That's how you know、uh, th- that's like there's a certain amount of cachet that you get for switching sides, and it's all the more you know. I think there, it's even more effective when you know union members or, or union organizers, you know,、right. become class traders and and go go to the dark side and, and try to help、right. the boss steal money from、But、workers. You, yeah, you get you get a certain sense of authority, especially if you're walking into a workplace where only a small section of people actually understand how unions work. You know,、right. it's an yeah, uphill you're battle. Like, oh, well, I've to- never I've never been in a union. I don't know anything. And and here's、right. this person who was. He was a、this、union is, organizer. There's this person who、years. is walking. He's walking a razor thin line because what he says in these meetings could, if he says the wrong thing, is going to be considered, you know, like stepping across 
the NLRA's line, which is, you know, they don't want it to be illegal. So they say, we're here to educate you. We're here to talk about the facts about unions, right? And it's manipulative language. So, and when people push back in these meetings, you know, I was listening to these, these captive audience recordings, there are, you know, worker organizers who are saying, this doesn't make sense because what you're talking about is you're saying this third party is coming in and they're not going to have your best interests. You don't have a say. And, you know, these workers are like, uh, what do you mean? The union is us. Like, this is mm-hmm. us. Like, we are the ones who are doing these negotiations. What are you talking about? You know, and like the, you know, in the, the, these, these uh, union busting consultants are saying, well, I'm just here to tell you, this is all, you know, these are just the facts about unions. This is what's going to happen. And when you have these happen every week, they take out, you know, an hour, an hour and a half of your shift every week to talk about the same shit over and over and over, eventually you either get scared because they go straight for scare tactics every time, or Mm. uh, you get tired and you say, all right, fine, I'll vote. No, I I, can, I go back to work now. You know, like they just wear these folks down and that's what happened at Sabre. You know, they, they had enough of these meetings. They talked to enough of these people who were just, you know, who walked off the job because of bad pay management uh, gave everyone raises right after it because people walked off the job and shut down the plant for a weekend. You know what I mean? And then they spent three, four, three months, four months, five months, just saying, no, we'll do it. It'll be fine. We'll work on this. We'll work on this. And eventually the, the union election failed, which is unfortunate because you know, talking to those workers, like they, they tried to bring a union to the, that plant specifically three times now, mm. third time. In the last two years, three years, uh, four years, you know, they, the, one of the worker or- organizers who I talked to, he, when he came into the company, they were in the midst of a union drive. So apparently conditions have not changed at all right. to the point where they have, they're doing this multiple times, you know? Um, and like the same, the same company gets brought in every time because they've had success keeping a union out of that plant for however many years they've been trying to do it, you know? Um, and it's manipulative and oh god it's just ugh, it's, it makes I mean me, obviously it has annoyed. some effect or they wouldn't continue to do it uh now right. i mean we've seen how it can be defeated at starbucks and at amazon most recently but you know it's just like tv commercials at some point they seep into your brain uh, or they wouldn't spend the billions that they do on advertising it may not work every time it may not work on every person but um you know they just throw it all against the wall to see what will stick and it's yeah they just need it to work on enough people right right just enough uh to distract or to demoralize um it's uh it is is it's pretty disturbing from the sense of the power dynamics at play because this isn't like you know a, a meeting at church and you can get up and walk out if you want to um this is work they your livelihood is mm-hmm. at stake and the way you respond to these meetings, the way you behave yourself in these meetings and what you may say or, you know, if you raise your hand and ask questions, all these things could really impact your ability to eat and have a house and feed your family and ha- go to the doctor. Um, and that's that's what makes them so insidious, uh, you know, as silly as some of the stuff is that they say. And some of it is like so obvious bullshit. But some of it is has enough truth embedded in it 
where it can it can manipulate people, and, and like you said, it's it, a lot of it is just just beating people down and demoralizing them to the point of, you know. Being sick right. of the whole thing. Don't even want to – like, hey, I don't even want to hear about anything involving this anymore because I've been bombarded for so long for so much. And it's uh, – it should not be legal. And, uh, Jacob, I know we're going to talk about the NLRB you know, mm-hmm. uh, news uh, later in the show. And, and hopefully it will be outlawed because it's, it's – it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I really so hope the, that that is something that does the paper ever forward. actually like. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I said I, I really hope that they do actually make it like mm-hmm. illegal for these meetings yeah. to happen because God. Y- your question so though, does sorry. the paper ever um, like make the make explicit the comparison like how you know it, it, do they actually say like okay you know. This is the same as, you know, blowing off a U.S. serviceman's arm or yes. leg or something. <laughs> yeah. Like what they the, do. The, yes. This, here's, this, here's this quote. Because these boom events are so important to a company, it is useful to think about them the same way that the military thinks about the IED attacks in Iraq. Union organizers are in many ways comparable to the insurgent networks that attempt to disrupt the U.S. military in Iraq. That is in the white paper. And then they go on to talk about how union organizers describe their goal is to disrupt and create fear and a division between employees and their employer. So essentially they're talking, you know, it's apples to apples for this guy. Right. He That's some projection he, there on that last bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've right? never heard a union organizer straight up say, yeah, we're here to cause chaos and fear and, and mm-hmm. division. Um but again, you know, this no. white paper is trying to sell this service to companies, right? So, right. You know, because the last two pages of the white paper is like, now that you know just a little tidbit, would you like to buy our, our full service? <laughs> yeah, here's here's all that we offer, you know. Um, talk to us. We'll do a free consulting call, and then we'll come into your workplace. And, uh, you know, I've seen, like, the LM20s, uh, the LRI is, like, sent off to folks uh, for their services. We're talking, like minimum four to five hundred dollars per hour plus travel plus per diem food and everything else um, for each of the consultants that they bring in the consultants the private contractors that they bring in for these types of work uh, they get paid something like two hundred dollars an hour so lri mm. is just making money hand over fist just contracting independent contractors to bring them into workplaces so, you know, these independent contractors could probably benefit from a union. I don't know. Because um, they're also getting shafted. Uh, yeah. Truly. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, they this is what they do. They they can boast 10,000 plus workplaces uh, avoided unions because they are uh, handing out shit like this and charging thousands of dollars per day over the course of what? You know, six weeks to six months. You know, that's wild. That's wild money. And, you know, yeah. if the big thing that bothers me, well, maybe it, maybe this is just kind of hilarious, I suppose, but these companies spend so much money on these union avoidance firms, like way more money than, say, a, a raise for their workforce over the course of a year. You know, millions of dollars with Amazon. Seriously? Mm-hmm. Why? Because you didn't want to give up power in the workplace. What? You know, it would have cost yeah. you less. You know, it costs Kellogg's millions of dollars to keep people out on strike for two months when the folks on strike were like, you could have paid for our raises like five times over at this point, you know, 
Oh like, yeah, why? I mean Warrior Met. They yeah. uh, if if they wouldn't have. Uh, you know, I mean, they've lost hundreds of millions of dollars, but they're still willing. You know, I mean, their goal is to is to bust the union, and so they're, you know, they're they're willing to to forego a lot of money to you know have that power. It, it, it's wild to me. You know, um, we're not asking for much in many of these situations; just asking to be treated like we have a shred of dignity and humanity left. You know, and these companies don't care. Uh, especially at places like Sabre, where it's run by, you know, bought by private equity. And it's all about uh, moving money and, and numbers in the right direction. Uh, the folks who make that money are the ones who are just an afterthought or a footnote, you know. Um, and you, when you read white papers like this, so absurd. You just know. Mm-hmm. You just know that like every other Every other union busting company that comes into a workplace has probably got something very similar, some proprietary, you know, these are insurgents. We are here to crush the insurgency in a workplace. You start to really think about like, okay, this really is class warfare. This is, we are uh, up against uh, individuals who do not view us as uh, uh, equals in the workplace. We are terrorists in the workplace. Like what, you know? Um, And at that point it's like, Fine. You want us to be that way? We will drop a bomb in the workplace and we will organize the fuck out of it because clearly you don't give a shit. Yeah, I mean, that's the, you know, to the extent that union organizers do so fear and chaos, all it is is illuminating the division that is already there, like Mm -hmm. illuminating the power dynamics and the hierarchies and the lack of control that you have. I mean, there's a, you know, I mean, there's, there is a part of, of, you know, the, the way that you're, you know, encouraged to have organizing conversations that is agitation, but agitation is not lying to people. Agitation is not creating chaos. It's not making situations out of whole cloth. It is, it, it is, Pulling out from the worker that you're talking to their lived experience, pulling out for them, helping put in stark relief what is actually happening happening to them and like help them understand why it's 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 fucking bullshit. <laughs> right. You know, well, and also, you know, it's it's not a foregone conclusion that the, these conditions can't improve. You know, which is a huge thing. You know, it's uh, trying to empower your coworkers to say, yeah, you're right. This is kind of fucked up. You know, what if we tried to change it? Right. Uh, That conversation absolutely feels like, you know, a bomb being dropped in the workplace because you're shredding the veil that this, uh, you know, uh, management or or company culture that apparently is, you know, very much strategic in the way that they construct it. Right. Um, you're, you're ripping that shit to shreds and you're saying, hey, it doesn't have to be this way. Right. Um, yep. Let's do something to change that. And, and that's so threatening to those in power. The idea of what if it was different? Uh, and what if we could make it different by coming together mm-hmm. is such a threat uh, that they mm-hmm. would go to these measures. And it's, uh, you know, it's it's sad. But, uh, you know, one of the things you you made me remember is one of the most common things that you hear in these union busting uh, videos and captive audience meetings is how, well, you know, 
your contract, things could actually get worse. Your pay could actually go down. It might go up, but it could go down. It's like, motherfucker, it's only going down if you're asking for it to go down. I mean, the union's not going to ask for it to go down. They're not going to ask for worse benefits. So if this contract... You know, not that this happens very often, if ever, but if by some chance you unionize and your contract gives you worse pay or worse working conditions or worse benefits than you've already had, well, that's on the company. Mm-hmm. Maybe right. it's on, you know, maybe you could have had a better negotiating team or maybe you could have had a more engaged membership. Or, or right. They're certainly not asking this, for less. Right. Yeah. Right. Clearly. Like, so, I mean, it, and it's weird how they will sort of remove the, the their own agency from this process. Like, it's just this well, is just the a, natural like order a, of things. It's like an abusive relationship. You made yeah. me do yeah. this, right? It's your fault. Yeah. Right? You hear that in That's organizing it. campaigns in academia all the time when grade strikes happen or things of that nature. It's like, you know, you are disadvantaging your students, right? Who mm-hmm. don't have a you don't have a dog in this fight. It's your fault that your students aren't progressing forward because you're withholding grades, which is the only way to withhold work in the in academia. It's like, no, man, you're the one who, you know, is doing this, right? Uh, folks who lose their appointments and such, it's your fault because you went on strike. It's like, no, you're the one who's the arbiter of this, right? Mm-hmm. You're the one who makes this decision. It's not us, right? It's, it's, not, it's not the things that we do. You know, we are just trying to find some space to be able to, uh, you know, improve our lives because you are banking on the fact that we view our careers, our jobs as, as a, a vocation that we, we should put in free work for. You know, and it's like, no, like we don't want to be exploited in that way. No one wants to be exploited in that way. You know, job is a job. I should get paid for it. Period. You know, so. Yeah. Mel, thanks for taking the time to join us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. This was a great conversation. Yeah, we enjoyed it. Thanks again for having us or for for being willing to come on and share and and best of luck with your book. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, Let you know when it comes out next year. Can people find you? Uh, Yeah, you can find me mostly on Twitter at cold brood tool it's a mouthful i know i don't know why i picked this handle a couple of years ago <laughs> but um you could also find the podcast on twitter at morning riot pod um you know those are going to be the best ways to reach me uh, there's a link tree in my my um uh, personal twitter account if you want to go to my patreon or uh website or what have you um and yeah uh you can also find me at the real news network i have a couple of articles there many more to come i'm sure if i can get max to keep uh, uh accepting my pitches <laughs> so um but yeah uh best way to reach me is there my dms are open so if you hated what i said or you want to uh, give me a compliment feel free to send me a dm so all right Awesome. Thanks, Mel. Appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate it. All right, all right. All right, yeah, we've been talking to Mel Buer. She is the host of Morning Riot podcast. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Cold Brood Tool. Um, so let's go ahead and jump to um, down to Brookwood. Uh, down in Brookwood, there was a rally last week that um, 
that had thousands of folks from all over the country, retired mine workers, uh, other union members, flight attendants, federal workers, teachers, iron workers, transport workers, all sorts of folks uh, came from across the country. I think it, I mean, it was like 3,000 people. It was a lot, a lot of folks um, to show their support for the striking miners in Brookwood, Alabama, who are striking against Warrior Met. They have been on strike for a year now. They've been on strike for over a year, and, um, I mean, they've been fighting all alone, basically, with the help of working folks in Alabama and across the country, but without any real help from the political class, from media in Alabama, conservative or otherwise. Um, and, you know, you'd be forgiven for... Um, not hearing about it if you mainly get your news from conservative talk radio because they were too busy covering the important stuff like the fact that Jefferson County schools are no longer going to be bombarding random ball game goers with state sanctioned prayer. So that's what that's what they were uh, concerned with last week on conservative talk radio in Alabama. That was that was the big story is that uh, Jefferson County schools no longer going to be doing prayers at ball games over the PA. But they still will in plenty of other places in Alabama, let me assure you yeah. of that. If you haven't been to a Friday night football game uh -huh. in a while, uh, <clears throat> especially in uh, your county school systems or some of your more rural school mm -hmm. systems, yeah, it absolutely happens. Uh, now, that's I was told amazing. that such things no longer exist, and that's why America's going down the shitter is because we don't have prayer in schools. But it's funny how uh, anytime I'm around schools, doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah. Uh, but regardless, I mean, you've got a rally with thousands of people from across the nation right here in Alabama, in Brookwood, and... It's commemorating a strike that's been on for over a year that is now possibly one of the, you know, one of, if not the longest strike in Alabama history. It is the longest now in Alabama history. So, um, uh, and David, I see your comment. Hope you have a great weekend, man. Thanks again for, for tuning in and for all your support. Uh, same to Jeb and everybody else who's been tuning in today and chatting in. Definitely uh, enjoy the, the back and forth and the dialogue. Uh, that is one of the cool things about doing it live. Yes. Um, but I was not able to go to the rally on Wednesday. I was at work with my IATSE brothers and sisters uh, putting together Disney on Ice. But, uh, Jacob, I know I saw where you went, David went. Um, I think maybe Jeb mentioned in the chat he went. Mm -hmm. There was His local it, donated $2,500 to their strike fund. Right. Very so cool. uh, shout out to the iron workers for, for doing that. That's that's really <clears> great. <throat> um, I know there's still a lot of a lot of need to support yeah. the uh, strike pantry and to support the strike fund. And if you haven't donated in a while or if you've never donated, uh, please, whatever you can. Um, I don't have much to give, but I, I try to give uh, – pretty regular as I can. Mm -hmm. um, I know there was a fundraiser about a month or so ago, right after the one you did, and uh, Lee Baines put out some music to go with it. There's just been a really cool community of folks to come come out of the woodwork to try to support them. Not any of the established figures, as you mentioned, you know, not right. 
you know, right wing media and the politicians and, and those folks have been mostly silent. But there have been a lot of people, good people mm-hmm. uh, here in Alabama and across the country and across the world even to to step up and, and show their solidarity for these brothers and sisters. And um, yeah, the UFCW has donated four hundred thousand dollars to their wow. strike fund. Wow, that's yeah. that is amazing. That's a, that's yeah. that's a testament to mm-hmm. to the solidarity that we have the potential to exercise. Um, yeah, yeah, a- a- absolutely. And uh, their strike fund has raised two million dollars over the last year in total. Um, and the uh, they have paid out from their union about twenty million dollars in strike benefits and health care for the uh, one thousand striking miners. Down yeah, there. that's that's very yeah. impressive. That's keeping people fed and and housed right now. And yeah, uh, you know we can't let Warrior Met and BlackRock and these other hedge funds we can't let them destroy this union mm-hmm. in our backyard. Yeah, we just, you know, and that's clearly, as you mentioned, that's that's the goal here. They're trying to starve out these miners, and they're trying to destroy the union uh, to take away this voice that they have. And so it's up to all of us to pitch in where we can and support them where we can, so that they can stay strong and and hopefully see a victory mm-hmm. soon. I, I really was hoping by now we would have good news to report, uh, but yeah. You know, the company is, is dug in and it's it's not going to move unless it mm-hmm. feels it has to. Yeah. The um, you know, I, I, I was talking to I believe it was Hayden that told me this last week. She said that, you know, as some of them were walking out, some of the managers were like, we're not ever going to let you all back. Um, and, uh, you know, there there's definitely there is an obstinance from the company that is is evil is evil um, it is uh and you know and and the fact that that there are people who portray themselves as advocates and working class and coal miners heroes that have yet to say anything about this um speaks volumes and you know it it, it it's it's frustrating, but it is amazing seeing them hold out this long. There's one local that Hayden said last week that they still haven't had a single person cross the picket line, which is amazing after a year on strike, not to have one scab from that local. And and just as a reminder, folks, they are advertising all across the country yeah. to bring in these scabs. They're, they're looking for them. They're bringing in people from out of state. Um, and of course, there's some some local folks as well, unfortunately. But right. uh, it's it's a it's a very important struggle, and, and I'm very proud. This mm-hmm. is what makes me proud about Alabama. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of shit about our state that makes me disturbed. That um, you know can be demoralizing at times. But this is this is the kind of Alabama that we can be proud of. Uh, these 1,100 folks out there on the strike and the folks who have come. The folks who have come to their side and who've tripped in money, who've given it attention, who've, you know, contributed however they can. That's the kind of Alabama that we deserve. Absolutely. Yeah. I. It's, um, you know, it, it, it's amazing seeing what they've been able to do. And, you know, there have been actually reports that there have been some movement, um, but, uh, you know, there's still not enough to to actually, you know, 
warrant ratifying a contract over, um, which is unfortunate. You know, I mean, like there, this is certainly a situation where if a year ago they had just given them what they had in 2015, both parties would be significantly better off as far financially. Yeah. Financially. But um, that's not all the company care. The company wants to retain their power. Um, And, you know, so Um, there were some education bills that passed the um, that passed the legislature and have headed to the governor's mansion for signature. One of them included a significant pay raise for teachers. Um, Adam, can you talk to us about some of the education updates in Alabama? Yeah, I'd be be happy to talk about that uh, since we do have, I would say, some degree of, of good news. Uh, I know it's easy for us to be Debbie Downers about Alabama politics because, frankly, there's not a lot good that comes out of Alabama politics. But uh, in good news, there is a record education trust fund budget. And uh, my understanding is it's about a 7% increase overall to last year's budget, which is definitely a step in the right direction. Um, Now, you put that in context that my understanding is inflation's at about 8% hmm. year over year. So, you know, I I know what the headlines are saying, and I know what the education groups are going to be saying to their members, and I get that, but this is not a time to just pop champagne and blow up balloons and, and you know, rest assured that everything's been fixed, because it's far from that. It's... It's a huge investment in Alabama public schools, and I think that's, like I said, a step in the right direction. Uh, There's going to be some important resources that are added, including uh, mental health coordinators. Uh, They're actually going to fund the technology coordinator positions for every district, which, especially now uh, in 2022, very important that school districts actually have the staff to deal with technology and distance learning and and integrate technology into their schools. Uh, there's going to be an increase in pre-K funding, which is absolutely needed. Uh, if if you're not aware, Alabama has what's called first-class pre-K program, and it actually is first-class. It's it's nationally recognized as a very effective uh, preschool program. The kids who go to it do very well. Uh, and those, there's some evidence that those benefits actually persist throughout their education. Uh, now, it starts to fade away as socioeconomic obstacles get in the way. Uh, but a kid who's gone through an Alabama first-class pre-K program is going to be in a much better position for kindergarten and first grade than a kid who hasn't. Uh, so that's good news. More money, uh, I think about 20-something millions being infused to pre-K. Uh, but my understanding is that raises the number of the access from about 42% to 45% of Alabama's eligible children. Hmm. Now, they didn't have no fancy numeracy act when I was in school, but I can do the math and realize that 45% ain't 100%. Hmm. And uh, if we're serious about improving education in the state... of children should be able to go to a high-quality pre-K program at no cost. That should be just a baseline baseline demand uh, coming from from all of us involved in education. And so I think – and I remember having uh, 
uh, a discussion with Representative Anthony Daniels about this a few years ago, and he was very – he is a big pre-K advocate. I'm, you know, we, we have some pretty significant disagreements, uh, I would say, but I like Anthony on a personal level, and, and I agree with him about the importance of pre-K, and he felt like the education community was not going hard enough on pre-K, mm-hmm. uh, in part because – if the Republicans are going to constantly bash you over test scores and constantly try to hold you accountable for these test scores, which we know mostly reflect poverty and other socioeconomic issues. But if that's the that's the game we're playing, we know that investing in pre-K can help help us play this game more or less. Uh, it shouldn't be a game. This is this is families lives. This is the future of children. But Republicans and Democrats, to some degree, uh, love to play games when it comes to children and education. So uh, I'm getting sidetracked there, but taking it back to good news, teacher raises. Every teacher, every school employee, period, is going to see at least a 4% pay raise. That's good. We'd like to see it better, but hey, that's a step in the right direction. one area where a lot of progress was made in re- was in revising the state salary matrix. So teachers, uh, counselors, librarians, they're all kind of classified the same as far as pay is concerned. Um, and there's a state minimum salary matrix. Every school district in the state has to pay at least that. Uh, they can pay more. Some do, mm-hmm. some don't. But what they did... Uh, is actually revise a lot of the steps in there so that every year folks will be seeing pay raises uh, because as it exists now, you may move a step in your experience, but you're actually only seeing an incre- a step raise every three years. And now it has been uh, revised to where folks will actually see a cost of living increase on an annual basis, as they move up in experience, they added some steps at the back end because what we've seen, particularly post-COVID, is a a flurry of resignations uh, and retire well, more accurately, retirements. Uh, so teachers who have their years in in the retirement system are getting the hell out of here, and the goal is to try to retain those folks. We need to recruit new educators, but you know what? We've got folks in the buildings now that we want to hold on to. And so I hope that this is going to be a really a step in the right direction. Uh, In talking with some educators about this recently, one of the things that we, you know, we all discussed is that as great as it is to see these pay raises and as necessary and overdue as they are, pay doesn't fix everything. Pay does not alone. Mm hmm address working conditions. Um, and so there's still a lot of work to be done on that front. And so that's that's I'm trying to kind of be nuanced here in that, yes, we have some good news and we need to appreciate that. And I, I am appreciative of everyone involved from the legislators down to the, the lobbyists and, and the educators themselves advocating for themselves. Um, this build on that and, and move forward from this new foundation of more investment. Um, because the context is that we had the second highest cuts to public education in Alabama after the Great Recession. We had increases in health care costs for education employees. We had 
increases in retirement contributions for education employees, the creation of a Tier 2 retirement system with weaker benefits, and on and on and on. Uh, so in a lot of ways, what we're doing is making up for lost ground over the past 10, 15 years. So, you know, don't celebrate just yet as if this is mission accomplished. These are good investments to build off of. Um, I know there was some discussion of divisive concepts and, you know, critical race theory bans. Uh, My understanding is the divisive concepts bill did not pass. So that's good. And we'll come back. Uh, the right wing has found a you know hot button issue that their base really rallies to and responds to, and so yeah. rest assured, and legislators. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, and especially in the next year, in the first year of the quadrennium, we can expect to see a. I, I feel pretty comfortable predicting that we we can expect to see a lot of these more controversial bills that were not able to pass this year a big fight over them in the first yes. year of the quadrennium because that is when they are the least responsive. That's when they passed the gas tax, yeah. right? Wasn't it? It was yeah, the first it, year it the was. second year of the quadrennium. Uh, would they pass a gas tax this year? Hell no. Hell no, they're not going to pass a gas tax this year, but it's been uh, you know three or four years ago, and so it's a lot easier to you know for people to forget about it. And right. so – uh, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's it's true. The the last year of the quadrennium, the election year, they're all hustling to get out of the session so they can go back to campaigning. So some of the more controversial bills, some of which we covered in depth on the show, um, thankfully, were delayed enough by activists and were you know just dragged out in the process to where they didn't make it through the finish line. Thank God for some of these bills. Uh, but all this bad shit will be coming back next year. Uh, and next year may be the, the one where we have to be even more careful uh, for those reasons you outlined. So I expect to see the school choice come back uh, you know, with mm-hmm. a vengeance. The big school choice bill by Del Marsh didn't make it through. Um, but again, folks, we already have school voucher programs through the Alabama Accountability Act, which is both a private school voucher program and a, you know, tax cut program for, for the wealthy. Um, so these things, these things are building on a context that was already uh, weak for public education. And so while we're moving forward in many areas, uh, there's a lot of work to be done. And the, the goal should be bottom-up decision-making, power to the educators who do the job, who do the work day in and day out, who know their students, who know the families and communities. They are the experts, not legislators in Montgomery, not bureaucrats uh, sitting at the State Department of Education. And there are some good people there, don't get me wrong, but those folks don't have all the answers. Right. Uh, it's it's really it's going to be how can educators organize and come together collectively to Yes, build on the pay raises, build on benefit improvements, uh, but start to address some key issues of working conditions and start to address the the lack of input that they have into our education system so that we can build a public school system that is truly more public and democratic. Uh, I think those are, are really the missions that we have moving forward. And uh, the last thing I'll say on on education is I know there's a lot of talk on right wing 
uh, radio uh, in Yellowhammer News and those kind of places about the Literacy Act. Um, the Literacy Act delay was sent to the governor. And the whole reason behind that, uh, the Literacy Act was a pretty extensive legislation a couple years ago about literacy, as the name implies. And uh, there were some good things in the bill, like hiring more reading coaches and, and investing resources and teaching literacy. Uh, there were also some things that were dubious, I would say, at best, uh, one of which is the third grade retention component, which says, essentially, if little Johnny or little Jane doesn't pass the test and doesn't you know, prove themselves to be proficient in literacy according to our definitions, they would be held back and have to repeat the third grade. Some other states have this, some don't. Uh, the the true academic research behind this practice, I would say, is a mixed bag at, at best. Um, but that has been delayed. Uh, I know AEA got a lot of flack for pushing for that delay, but y'all, it's just common sense. If you talk to teachers, the, the 2019-2020 school year, well, that got jacked up starting in March. Uh, folks were sent home. Uh, the, then you look at the 2020-2021 school year, last school year, um, again, there was tons of disruptions. Vaccines weren't even available until the second semester. Um, there was uh, outbreaks in district after district. There were some that were trying to do remote. Some were coming back and then having to send them home again. All that to say, the last few years would not really be a, a decent baseline to start this punitive approach of the retention. Mm -hmm. um, so the goal would be, let's have a couple somewhat more normal school years and a couple more years to actually implement the resources and use the resources and follow the Literacy Act before we start holding kids back uh, or, you know, blaming schools or teachers. So that's the, the rationale behind it. I, I don't see any massive push from educators to, you know, absolve themselves of responsibility or accountability. I don't think that's the case at all. But uh, as per usual in right-wing media, they like to come up with their own narratives and their own tropes that they can run with, one of which, of course, in Alabama is is the perennial uh, fear and hatred of the Alabama Education Association, the AEA. And um, I won't go too deep on that beyond just saying the AEA that exists on, on the pages of Yellowhammer and on right-wing radio is very, very far from the reality that exists with AEA. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, I wish AEA was the uh, militant, progressive, all-power, you know, puppet master in Montgomery that they make them out to be, uh, but it's pretty far from the case. So... That's all I have to say there. Lots of good news, uh, but lots of work to be done. And what I would like to see is educators coming together to organize and build a, a bottom-up grassroots movement um, to build on these kind of victories, but to really expand elsewhere and to start to link up our, our needs for public schools with our broader public good. Because until we start to address that, we're always going to be under fire. We're always going to have a huge target on our back. Every year, these statistics come out and say, well, Alabama's 49th or Alabama's 50th, Alabama's 51st. Every year, these come out, 
it only gives more ammunition for the privatizers and for the corporate reformers and all the other the union busters, everyone else who's aligned against public education and aligned against public sector workers. Until we address that, we're always going to be fighting from the defensive. Right. And that's why it's important that educators have a movement that can link up with a broader working class movement to start to address the deep poverty in this state, the lack of health care in this state, the lack of jobs and unions and infrastructure and transportation in this state, a racist, uh, a racist police state that over incarcerates our brothers and sisters, the parents of these children and so on. You know, and, and so I think those are the, the types of the areas that we have to look at moving forward. So good news to report, but a lot to work on. And, you know, we'll stay tuned. Stay tuned, especially next year. All this bad shit that just yeah. barely didn't make it, it'll be coming back with a vengeance, and we'll have to fight that much harder to keep it out. Yep, absolutely. Um, so the NLRB General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo has issued a memo requesting that the board find captive audience meetings illegal. As the NLRA offers, That's huge. yeah, huge. But, uh, and, and the reasoning for this is that the NLRA offers workers the right to engage or not to engage in a union campaign. Thus, captive audience meetings constitute coercive participation in an anti-union campaign and should be illegal under the National Labor Relations Act. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, Adam said it. If this goes through, it would be huge, uh, absolutely. Because, you know, when I was down there, I, I, I took off work for a week to um, make house visits with RWDSU in Bessemer um, during the campaign. And, you know, a lot – I mean, you could you could just tell how many captive audience meetings these people had been through um, because all of the questions that they were asking me was just stock – anti-union propaganda i mean no originality to it no you know stock anti-union propaganda and the um you know i mean workers should not be made to listen to it they you know employers should not be able to utilize their power over workers in the workplace to preach at them to lie to them to lie to them explicitly lie yeah i mean you know the the um I mean, there, the, people would be absolutely up in arms if, and rightfully so, if Democrats had the ability to force people into an auditorium to listen to their drivel at the cost of their livelihoods, right? We wouldn't accept that. In, in a civilized society, um, we would not accept that we, uh, we would not accept being forced to listen to one side in an election and that side having, uh, our bank account in their hands. I mean, that's, we wouldn't accept that. Right. That's and, what we criticize other countries for doing all the time. Right, I right. mean, you name the country, if they've ever been considered a bad guy by the State Department and the mainstream media, that's one of the things they throw at them mm -hmm. is that, oh, well, their elections are unfair. They, their thumb is on the scale. It's right. not free. They don't actually have a fair opportunity to choose their, their leaders. 
And if we conducted political elections the way we conduct union elections, right. uh, as you said, it would be completely unacceptable. And, and yeah. you know, our elections are bad enough as it is, but right. <laughs> the union elections and the what the bosses can get away with mm-hmm. um, is obscene. And this is, you know, uh, I mean, and th- th- there's going to be people say, oh, free speech, free speech, free speech. I should be able to do whatever I want. This isn't saying that the boss can't lie to their workers, that they can't misrepresent the truth to their workers, that they can't tell their side. They still just, will. <laughs> they still will. And they still can. It's just saying that you should not be able to Tie your workers to a chair and force them at threat of termination and therefore at threat of starvation, of homelessness, of death. Uh, you know, if somebody has a has a pre-existing health condition, you know, you should not be able to force a person at the point of a gun to listen to your drivel. Union or, or union organizers can't do that. Pro-union employees can't do that. We have to get people. We have to talk to people that are willing to talk to us. If people don't want to talk to us, they don't have to. They don't have to listen. They can say, no, I'm not interested, and shut the door, and we'll go on our way. They, if we call them, they can just hang up the phone, and we'll go on our way. These captive audience meetings do not provide for the free choice of the worker to say no. The worker should have the freedom of expression, the freedom of choice, the freedom of association to say, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in this. I do not want to participate in your anti-union campaign. And that should be a freedom. That is that should be the freedom that we're concerned with protecting, not the freedom of the boss to coerce their employees. That is not a legitimate freedom. That's not a freedom that I'm interested in at all. I'm interested in the freedom of the workers to choose to organize themselves or to not organize themselves or to organize themselves in the way in which they see fit. That's the freedom that I'm interested in uh in, in, in pursuing, in protecting, not the freedom of the boss to, to coerce their employees. So this is going to be huge, but no doubt it's going to be challenged in the courts. And with this insane reactionary anti-worker pro-business I, uh, uh, court, I mean, I don't know. I'm almost worried that they're going to just try to throw out the whole NLRA, but we'll see. Yeah, I, I am concerned about that as well. But, you know, we'll take the victories where we can and uh, I think we've we've said it on the show before, but I have to say uh, Jennifer Abruzzo may be the best thing to come out of Joe Biden yeah. uh, oh, so far. Sure. Uh, there's not a lot not a lot of good stuff coming out of that White House, uh, but that that's one where I'll, I'll give him the credit. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so Elon Musk bought Twitter last week. <laughs> and uh, Alabama bosses and other weirdos are extremely excited. They're extremely excited for being on a Twitter where you can say the N-word, but you can't be mean to your boss. Uh, because that's the kind of Twitter that Elon Musk would create if he could. So, that's great. Yeah, that about says it, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, the the amount of wealth that these people have in this country is... I mean, we should take it from them because there are better things that can be done with it than sending a, a you know, a billionaire to the edge of space. Um, but also for reasons like this, so that 
uh, you know, a properly motivated wealth. You know, I mean, this properly motivated wealthy person just got just bought themselves a seat on the board of one of the most important public forums in the country. What? What? It's not good for democracy for wealthy people to have so much power. It's just not – it's not legitimate. When they can single-handedly reshape the media landscape. I mean and this mm-hmm. is a person who has repeatedly violated Twitter's own uh, policies, yeah. someone who's repeatedly committed uh, violations of the National Labor Relations Act as well as SEC regulations on Twitter. Right. Um and my understanding, uh, at least based on reporting from Means Morning News this week, is that he even committed an SEC violation in this purchase by not disclosing it soon enough. Uh, but, you know, don't hold your breath for some sort of accountability. Yeah. But, it, it, I mean, the um, it, it is uh, – and, and wh- everything that I'm saying goes for, like, Jack Dorsey or the other owners of Twitter, for, uh, you know, Zuckerberg over Facebook, for, uh, you know, China over TikTok. Like, these, these, these people – should not have so much control over the conversation in the United States. Like that's just that's it's it's illegitimate. It's illegitimate, um, and so we should take their power away from them. They shouldn't have it. Uh, they should not. <laughs> they should not have that power. But you know the the people that see Elon Musk as a free speech warrior. Why do they see him as a free speech warrior? Why are they excited for a Twitter that? has Elon Musk at the helm. It's because they believe that he will defend their right to, on Twitter, uh, say racist and bigoted and reactionary things. And, and you know, I mean, maybe people should be able to say that, but... Maybe you know I don't know. People should be able to say like I don't. I don't think that we should throw people in jail for being racist. I don't think that we should throw people in jail for being bigoted. You know I mean there's a, you know there's a certain amount of like Nazis need free speech too. But the uh, you know Elon Musk is not concerned with freedom of speech for working people, and that is the freedom of speech, the free speech fight that reactionaries. Who have taken up the mantle of, of of fighting for free speech over the last several years? That is the real free speech fight in this country. That's the free mm-hmm. speech fight that is even happening at Tesla. I mean, we covered a couple yes. of weeks ago the More Perfect Union reporting on how there is on how people have been fired for organizing a union. People have being di- have been disciplined for organizing a union. People have been fired for speaking up about racism in the workplace. Let some Tesla. Let some Tesla workers tweet about their working conditions and yeah. their bosses, and see how Mr. Free Speech comes to their aid. Yeah, you're so right that this the the whole debate around freedom of speech uh, is it's so distorted. It because really the is. Conversation it's is out of all, touch with our reality as working people. The conversation is all about whether or not a millionaire has his book listed on Amazon, or a billionaire has a Twitter account. Or not, when these people represent so such a minute a minority of what people are materially facing when it comes to their right to express themselves in this country, because it is, I mean, infinitely more. Com- if you could find a graph 
last year, if you could find a graph last year of all the people who were fired, who were fired, and what does being fired mean? Being fired means uh, you l- lose your, uh, you know, you could lose your house, you could lose your health care, uh, you could become homeless. You know, I mean, being fired, all the people who were fired for speaking out about discrimination, for you, for organizing a union, for just because their boss, uh, like, had piss in his Cheerios that morning yeah. for no reason at all. Think about Chris Smalls, who yeah. was advocating for COVID safety protocols. And first thing they did was quarantine him and nobody else around him. Mm-hmm. Okay, he, he mm-hmm. figured out something was up. Uh, and as he escalated, he was fired with a phone call. A yeah. man who'd spent four and a half years, you know, dedicated his life to that company. You know, that's... That's the reality of freedom of speech in this country. If you put a graph of all of those people next to the graph of all of the free speech stories that get circulated on right-wing loser media, the second bar, I don't even think you could see it. But that is what the conversation is focused on. And that's because they don't want you to think about all this other stuff, because if you think about all this other stuff, you're going to be pissed off at the boss. You're going to be pissed off at Republicans, at Democrats, at corporate executives, at politicians, instead of being pissed off at, like, immigrants or, uh, you know, gay people on Twitter. Because that's who they want you to be pissed off at. They want you to be pissed off at the gays or, or the immigrants instead of the bosses and 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 that is and, and that is the that's why i mean we want to do everything that we can to recenter the actual to, to 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 bring people back down to earth to reality about what is actually happening with people's right to speak freely in this country because the the most people face restrictions on their right to freely express themselves in the workplace, not on Twitter or not on and not on Facebook. And the restrictions that they face in the workplace have much more serious ramifications. Um, so uh, so the slap, the slap, uh, Will Smith uh, slapped Chris Rock into last week, uh, in, into next week or last week or, or next year or whatever the thing is. And the thing about that is that after that, celebrities cross the picket line. That's the thing about that. I don't really care so much about the first thing. But celebrities cross the picket line, and that's what we should be talking about, and nobody else, <laughs> nobody's talking about it, except for places like In These Times, which um, is great. So uh, the Chateau's owner, Chateau Marmont, whatever, however you pronounce it, Jay-Z had a big party there, and uh, and and their owner... Which is a famous hotelier, Andre Bellas. I mean, all these names are just BS. Like, oh my God, so pretentious. They they sound bourgeois. I <laughs> They have been accused of abusive treatment and sexual harassment by several employees. Which, you know, of course the owner denies. Black and Latino workers have also accused managers of discrimination and using racial slurs. There's been a union campaign at this uh, at this um, at this place, and uh, uh, and there was a picket line 
while they were have and, and and so they they were on strike they were they were picketing and um and they had asked Jay Z prior to right they it wasn't like they just expected them to turn around with no notice they actually reached out to the publicist and uh, uh, to the publicist of all these people and said uh, first to Jay Z and said hey you know could you please have your millionaire billionaire bash like literally literally freaking anywhere else just find a hotel any hotel that's not under a union boycott yeah and do it there i mean literally freaking anything else um and jay-z refused and a lot of uh a lot of these celebrities Cross the picket line. I'm I'm kind of disappointed in some of them. Some of them I was a little surprised by, like you know Rosario Dawson is someone who's been pro labor, and mm-hmm. uh, there were a few other uh, Questlove. There were a few others that sort of caught me by surprise, uh, and I'm guessing that uh, they had to have known what they were doing. Oh yeah, uh, I'll give Dawson credit she said that she arrived at the hotel after the picketers were gone and Mm -hmm. that she didn't know about it and that she does stand with the union and will not go back to that hotel until the union uh gets what they deserve so good for her uh don't know if anyone else has actually put out a statement like that in these times reported that they have not put and no one else has reported out a statement but yeah rosario don dawson uh who supported bernie sanders Janelle Monet, Zoe Kravitz, who was recently the Catwoman, Timothy Chalamet, my girlfriend. Not the Dune boy. My no. Girl, my no. girlfriend's going to be really sad about oh, that. Oh, no. One. The boy from Dune. Yeah. So, sorry, Ryan. No more Timothy Chalamet movies. He's canceled. He is canceled. <laughs> He's canceled. See, okay, here we are. Being canceled culture, yeah, We folks. just talked about free speech, and now we're canceling celebrities. What we've become everything that we hate. Michael B. Jordan, Rihanna, Emily Ratajkowska. I can so- never pronounce her name, but she was a big Bernie supporter. She was a big. Bernie I know who you're talking about. Saweetie, Questlove, Daniel Kaluuya, Timoth- uh, Tiffany Haddish, Tyler Perry, Mindy Kaling of The Office fame, John Hamm, D.G. Khaled, and Kim Kardashian. John some- Hamm, really, man, you're one of the best actors out there on TV, and, and you're going to cross a union picket line. Hmm. That was his Mad Men and uh, all these era. People- <laughs> that was Mad Men seeping into his behavior, maybe. I, I want to believe. He was just he was just channeling his Don Draper uh, business executive character. I want to believe that. All these people, I mean, I don't really know how it is with, I know with actors, basically every actor is a member of SAG-AFTRA. I don't know if, like, musicians probably aren't members of unions, I guess. Yeah, I suppose it depends on on the, obviously, like, classical musicians and those in symphonies and and orchestras are usually. But these people, like these actors, Timothy Chalamet, Michael B. Jordan, Tyler Perry, Mindy Kaling, these people should know better. Kim Kardashian, of course, you know, not surprised by that. No, no, I, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and, and like Will Smith, it was just announced last week. Will Smith has been barred from from the Academy for like 10 years, for 10 years. And, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's fine. I don't think that they did. that. Did they ever revoke the membership of child rapist Roman Polanski or um, 
or all the other serial rapists, all the other ones. I don't know. I don't know. So I don't know. Maybe I mean maybe it's legitimate to bar him for ten years. Like I don't know. I don't really care. But these folks, these folks, if he's banned for ten years, these folks should be banned for like twenty years. Well, but they won't be. I do want to make sure we recognize some of the folks who did honor the picket line and who uh, endorsed the boycott by the union. Uh, that includes folks like Jane Fonda. Yeah. Not really surprised Tom there. Tom Morello. No, no surprises there. Uh, but Gabrielle Union, uh, Adam McKay, Amanda Seyfried, uh, Sarah Spike Silverman, Lee. Martin Sheen, um, Spike Lee, Alfonso Cuaron, one of the best directors out there today. So there were some folks, yeah, were some, some, some good, talented actors and directors uh, and entertainers who were very explicit in endorsing the union boycott. And shout out to them. Yep. Make a little mental note. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, so, up next, uh, Starbucks workers are just, and we've only got one more story after this, so we're going to be wrapping up here soon, but Starbucks workers are just absolutely demolishing. They are owning, they're owning the bosses. Just yesterday, Yesterday, they won four elections with a total of four no votes across all four locations. A total rout. Um, and um, You love to see it, Yeah, folks. we love to see it. Right before that, uh, r- right before those elections, uh, the Starbucks general counsel was let go, was fired, hmm. with an $8 million severance. Good grief. An eight, I didn't know that. Eight, $8 million. Eight million dollar severance. Man, these people failing up. I mean, could you like uh I'm not gonna get eight million dollars if I screw up my job and totally fail at what I was supposed to Hell, do. Hell, I'll never see eight million dollars, period. I'll yeah. never know what that looks like. I could live off that for the rest of my life and feel just fine. Mm-hmm. Uh mm-hmm. and to get that as a part of being fired because you sucked at your job so badly that you keep losing time after time. Oh, God. Oh. Yeah. Man, it's crazy. The NLRB is coming through as well. Um, you know, there's been a lot of complaints about the NLRB from the Starbucks Workers Union, but I'm a bit like, I, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a Fed, but I'm inclined to be a bit more sympathetic to the NLRB than maybe the Starbucks Workers Union, Workers United are. Um, they're talking about like how, you know, the NLRB is like aiding and abetting basically Starbucks anti-union campaign. But, you know, I mean, we just talked to Joe last week about how um, the NLRB has been flat funded for years. It's been defunded. It's got its uh, hands they, tied yeah, I mean, it's got in, its in some important ways. For a lot. And. And there was, oh man, I wish I had, I just remembered this. But, the, but like in fiscal year 2020, they reinstated 900 workers, I think. I think that's what it was, or maybe it was 600. And in fiscal year 2021, they had 6,000 workers reinstated. I saw that the other day in a, um, in an article. I mean, that, you know, that's, uh, that's a lot. I, I see it a lot like I see the EEOC, uh, Equal yeah. Employment Opportunity Commission. Yeah, and that's I'd... where your, your civil rights complaints go. Right. And I think in both agencies, there are some people who are decent 
well-meaning people who are doing trying to do the right thing and are there for the purpose of the agency, which is to help ordinary people, uh, but for various reasons related to their budgets and related to their their organization's leaders and designs, uh, the politicians uh, who have boxed them in. For all these reasons and more, you know, they're not going to be the agencies that we would like to see in terms of how fast they move or how uh, resolute they are in standing on the side of us as normal, ordinary working people. Right. So, But, you know, you don't work for the NLRB, right? You don't apply for a job at the NLRB if you want to hamper union organizing. Right. You know? I mean, yeah. it's just not like you just wouldn't do that. Right. right. And so I, I'm inclined to I'm inclined to to, you know, give them the benefit of the debt, give the workers, the field examiners, the attorneys at the NLRB. But it is important to recognize the, you know, the the limitations of the institution, um, but which we've th- talked about a lot and, and how yeah. broken our labor law is. And that's that's another part of it is. You know, these agencies can only operate within the confines they have. And until we change some of these backwards laws and until we add some of the protections that should have been included from the get go, you know, well, it all it'll be an uphill battle. Right. Right. Yeah. But the um, uh, but but, you know, I mean, and, and, and just like last week, the NLRB said that the firing of the Memphis Seven, who we talked to, you can go back and watch our interview with them. They said that that was illegal. Starbucks is, of course, going to challenge that. But that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Um, so Howard Schultz, as a result of Starbucks Workers United, just absolutely dog walking the bosses, he has taken over at Starbucks uh, in an attempt to right this ship. And to get the union out, and in an address to stakeholders last week, he had this to say. Adam, let's go ahead and play that clip. Here's where it gets a little sensitive, because I've been coached a little bit. But I do want to talk about something pretty serious. We can't ignore what is happening in the country as it relates to companies throughout the country being assaulted in many ways, by the threat of unionization. <laughs> the threat. Yeah, being assaulted by the threat of unionization. And that actually ties really well with... That's that's funny, because I just saw that tweet uh, from, from Mel yesterday about union organizers being compared to jihadi insurgents in Iraq. But that pairs really nicely, because, <laughs> because the, here we've got this guy talking about being assaulted... By workers wanting to have a say over their working conditions. Being assaulted. This guy has probably never been hit in his life. Talking about being assaulted by baristas wanting fair working conditions. And wanting a say on the job. I mean, can- Jesus, man. That's crazy. Um, and And so... Jordan Zacharin of More Perfect Union pointed out a bit of irony on Twitter. Let's put out the put out that first tweet from Jordan or, or the first half of that tweet. He said Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz today said that the company was, quote, threatened by the assault of unionization. And now let's go to the second half of that tweet. An hour later. Starbucks fired union leader Layla Dalton for trying to protect herself from ongoing harassment by managers. 
And she's just one of several yeah. of the activists and organizers who've been terminated by Starbucks. We've talked to some on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And these firings are continuing. And so, yeah, I do hope that they're reinstated. But it should never happen in the first place. And that is a that's the kind of assault that really hurts people to lose your job to be fired in retaliation for speaking up that's i mean that that hurts people on a very uh base level material physical level it hits people on a mental and spiritual level as well yeah uh, it, it's i mean the like how do you not see the irony of talking about language of violence language of violence i'm being assaulted by my workers coming together and associating with one another and then firing somebody you know we were we were talking uh before the show about this and it's funny how he he even mentions hey i've been coached um we know for a fact he's spending millions to get advice from lawyers and and union busters and consultants pr people he has all these you know ostensibly smart accomplished people that he's paying very well to tell him how to not stay say stupid shit and yet he's so narcissistic he yeah. can't help himself he has to say stupid shit um that's kind of a boss in the nutshell Yep, that's about it. Um, so the last thing that we want to talk about is um, this Intercept article. It's just amazing. <laughs> it's, it's really something else. Um, an Amazon worker chat app. So Amazon is developing this app that would ban words like union, restrooms, Pay raise, plantation, freedom, slave labor. Mm. I mean, banning freedom. They're literally, I mean, literally banning freedom. That reminds me of that union busting video we watched. Um, It's been a couple months now, but we watched one. Maybe it was Lowe's or, or Home Depot where one of one of the phrases to be aware of it was like respect and dignity. You oh, know, those so, are banned too. Right? Yeah, yeah. So you know, if you're a manager somewhere and folks start talking about respect and dignity, watch out. Yep. Yeah, you gotta watch out. I mean, man, it's really, really amazing. Like, uh, you know, and and oh yeah, that's right, Trail. I mean, th- one of the things that they that they said uh, is one of the things that they're banning is concerned. Like some of this language is not just like that they're banning isn't just like, oh, I want to be able to like talk crap about the boss or talk crap about the company. I mean, like you could imagine a situation where somebody says, I'm concerned about something. And hey, I'm concerned because, the restroom is flooding. Yeah, the restroom is flooding <laughs> or like. Like a beam fell from the ceiling and I'm concerned or I'm concerned about this package not going. You know, I mean, there's like, uh, uh, you know, there's practical reasons that you would use these words. And what happens, what the what the leak has shown is that this app would just not send messages that contain these words like it would just send it into a black hole. And the sender and the person who is on the receiving end of it would not be notified that the message was not sent. People who were 
slated to receive the message would never know that it didn't send, and people who sent the message would never know that it wasn't received. But the company would know. The company, the company would know, course, and they would yeah. know that you sent that and tr- or try to send that. Yeah. It's it's pretty uh, dystopian. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they weren't talking about that on Right Wing Radio last week, though. Um, they had more important things to talk about, like how, uh, you know, schools aren't blasting prayers at their attendees of their ball games or um let's see what's some other things caving to the left by removing prayer um discussing the cowards in the Jefferson County school board i mean like multiple like hours spent on that and amazon is banning freedom <laughs> you know they're, uh, but, you know, they don't want to call attention to that because that might make people want to do something about it. So, got to be quiet about it. Yeah, well, that's a, that's about it. That's about it for the show today. Uh, we had Adam, a full slate. Yeah, yeah, we had a full slate. Uh, it was a good show today. I, I do enjoy, um, I enjoy being able to be, uh, uh, to be live and be able to see the, um, you know, see, interact with the chat. Absolutely. It's and, you know, fun. have kind of the more structured uh, first half of the show on yes. FM radio and a little bit looser format yeah. here online where we Y'all can... got to call us, though. Y'all got to call us. We pay for this. We pay for this yeah, leave phone us, line. Leave us voicemails, if nothing else. If nothing else, you got to leave us a voicemail. But we pay for the phone line. We pay like, like, what is it? Three cents a second to have this phone line open during the show? Y'all aren't calling us. You gotta have to give us a call, make it worth our while. Um, but Adam, you had a couple things you wanted to plug before we before we left. Sure. Uh, those of you who've been listening for a while, you may know and remember that we do try to plug local events here in North Alabama in the Tennessee Valley. Uh, so if there's anything good going on in the community, whether it's statewide or here at the local level please please share with us so we can plug it as well and you know hopefully expand the reach expand the audience of those events so a few good things that are happening that i wanted to make sure we plugged uh starting with like an hour and 15 minutes from now hometown action uh today april 9th at 2 p.m to 4 p.m they are doing hometown routes where we've been and where we're going Join Hometown Action and Hometown Organizing Project members and supporters for a virtual statewide gathering today. Hometown Action is building a multiracial, working-class, trans-queer-affirming movement for racial, gender, economic, and climate justice and organizing the people power to win inclusive and sustainable rural and small communities across Alabama. So from 2 to 4, you'll hear what they've been up to over the past year and be part of planning their 2022 campaigns and they will have a casual social hour uh, from 4 to 5. So if you get a chance, check out Hometown Action. You can find the link. You can get involved there. The next event I wanted to plug would be Music for Mechanics, which is coming up Sunday, April 24th at 1 p.m. through 8.30 p.m. It's going to be uh, all day or all afternoon, all evening. Join Blues to Bluegrass, the North Alabama School for Organizers, and our wonderful friend Spice Radio 
as they raise money for the free automotive clinic up here in the Huntsville area. So there'll be great free music all afternoon, raffle drawings, great food and, and beer at the stove house. Live streaming will be provided by Spice Radio Huntsville. And this is all to raise money for the automotive free clinic here in the Huntsville area. So good opportunity to socialize, hear some good music, and support a good cause. Uh, there are two events coming up by the League of Women Voters that I wanted to mention. Uh, the League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan group. Some really, really sweet ladies, uh, many of whom I've met over the years as an activist, who are dedicated and really try to give back to their community. So the first one actually involves another friend of the show uh, who was on earlier today, Daniel Tate. So the League of Women Voters has an environmental education series and they are hosting one called The Climate Crisis in Alabama, Impacts and Renewable Energy Solutions. That will be Tuesday, May 3rd at 6.30 p.m. They're going to be joined by Scott Duncan, who will review the causes of climate change, the current and future impacts on the southeast, and what our goal should be in response. Daniel Tate of Energy Alabama will discuss the importance of utilizing clean energy here in Alabama addressing the urgency related to climate change, along with other challenges such as energy affordability and economic growth, by describing the economic and environmental risk of a continued reliance on fossil fuels in the power and transportation sectors, especially considering the context of Ukraine and COVID, Daniel will stress the great need of a swift transition to a renewable energy economy. So that's, again, May 3rd, 6.30 p.m. I know there's a Facebook event for that. And the other event by the League of Women Voters is a voter services drive, and I know they do these pretty regular in the community. So the League of Women Voters of Tennessee Valley is doing a drive-up, walk-up voter services event Saturday, April 16th from 1 to 4 p.m. at the North Huntsville Public Library. That's the one on Sparkman. And the following services will be provided free of charge. Voter registration, absentee ballot applications, Witness for absentee ballot affidavit envelopes, photo ID copying service, election reminder text, and voter guides. If you're trying to apply for an absentee ballot, don't forget to bring some form of photo ID. So, again, Saturday, April 16th, 1 to 4 in the afternoon. If you need some help getting ready to vote in the elections this year, this summer, uh, there's an opportunity. And then, finally, I wanted to... Uh, point of personal privilege, I wanted to plug a recent episode from our friends at the Real News Network. On April 8th, yesterday, they hosted a conversation with Sarah Nelson, who is, of course, the international president of the Flight Attendants Union with CWA AFL-CIO, as well as another friend of the show, historian and professor Harvey J.K., and the episode is called From Amazon to Starbucks, Workers Are Rising Up and progressives need to support them at all costs. I love that episode. It really got me in the mood for today. Uh, so if you haven't checked that out, highly recommend it. Those are two people uh, who had some important perspectives to share on kind of where we're at with organized labor in this country, uh, right on the heels of these amazing wins in Starbucks and Amazon, as well as the long ongoing struggles such as our brothers and sisters in Brookwood at Warrior Met Cole. So that's all I have for today. I Treo really appreciate everybody tuning in. Yeah, Treo in the chat said that the um, hometown action event is postponed to Tuesday, May the 10th. 
Okay. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. Appreciate it. Anytime there are, there's stuff like this going on in the community, y'all y'all let us know. DM us, tweet at us, email us, whatever. However you want to get in touch with us, leave us a voicemail, uh, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but please do keep us involved. I try to you know see what's going on out there. I know Jacob does as well. But you know we're just we're just us, um, and so really it takes a collective effort to make the community aware of what what all's going on out there. Because there are a lot of people who are doing good work, uh, but often we are doing it kind of in our own silos and not always linking up with each other and sharing our efforts and collaborating. So hope to do that uh, with our show. It's something we we try to do, and we're going to keep working at. And uh, anyone who you know, if you tuned in today and you're not already subscribed to the YouTube channel, if you're not already liking us or following us on Facebook and Twitter, if you haven't already subscribed on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast, please do that. That's an easy thing you can do to help support the show. Um, give us a, a review or a rating um, on the apps. Uh, that always helps. If you can like the videos as we release them on YouTube, those little things do make a difference. You know, we have to play the algorithm game just like anybody else online. And, um, you know, I, I certainly Jacob and I know that not everybody's in a position to contribute financially. Those of you who are and who do that, uh, it really means a lot. It, mm-hmm. it gives us the, the means to continue doing this project. And so if you do believe that we need pro-union, pro-labor working class media by and for working class people here in the Tennessee Valley. Uh, please contribute how you can. We, we appreciate it a lot. Yep. So that's going to be it. Uh, thanks for your time. Uh, like you said, if you want to help us stay on the air, you want to buy a new hat, you can visit our website, tvlr.fm to find that stuff. Uh, share and follow on social media. Don't forget to review and subscribe on your podcasting app of choice. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, share your thoughts on the content of today's episode, ask us a question, or share a union win or a bad boss story. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller, and we will see you next week.